0: Hello. A new Who's Round. At last. So, I suppose this is sort of series two, because, uh Obviously, last week was the culmination of my labours in 2013 to get a first-hand anecdote from every single Doctor Who story, which I did sort of-ish. So, listen up. Um, I've done loads more, uh, and I'm going to release them in any old order, um, because that's the way I roll. This one uh, was recorded relatively recently, but it's a special one because, as you'll discover, it was at the request of the interviewee uh, that we spoke. So... We're going to start talking about something very close to his heart
1: uh, and uh, take it from there, so enjoy! It's my second interview of the day, Um, we're just around the corner from the Orange Tree Theatre in Richmond and I have a gentleman who sort of approached me about this so I'm going to ask him who he is, but not why I'm talking to him about Doctor Who but why we've convened to talk around Doctor Who and other things but principally um, something that's very close to your heart
2: Yes, it's because, um, do I say who I am? Yes, do. Uh, It's because I'm Geoffrey Beavers um, and I wanted uh, desperately to particularly uh, advertise this particular charity um, because my son, uh, Ben, my eldest son, who is now 44, recently had cancer, a particularly aggressive and horrible form of cancer, actually called mantle cell lymphoma, which, um, is sort of incurable except by stem cell therapy. And, um, he went through over the last year, he's gone through the most awful, um, uh, difficulty with, um, Chemotherapy and uh, everything you can do, uh, but then uh, had to face a stem cell transplant. And the thing about stem cell transplants is that um, it's much better that there is a possibility of a complete cure if you um, um, if you can get a complete match for the stem cell transplant. So if your stem cells completely match somebody else's, then you can get a complete cure. There is another way of doing it, which is to take your own stem cells and clean your blood um, of, um, of all the cancer. There's a symbolic, there's a symbolic <laughs> a siren going on. Siren going by for an ambulance in the background. Um, uh, yes, uh, that you can uh, clean your own blood and have your own stem cells implanted, but it's not a complete cure, and that's what he did. Um, and um, but it's not a complete cure, and at some point, this very aggressive cancer will return. Uh, and he'll be faced with the same thing all over again. It may be a year, it may be five years, but it's a sort of death sentence hanging over him, which is a horrible thing. Uh, But if you can get a complete match, um, then you can get a complete cure. So the reason why people ask... um, This is for a charity called... I'm, I'm appealing for a charity called Anthony Dolan... Anthony Nolan, sorry, anthonynolan.org which is um, a charity you can uh, donate to or you can donate your stem uh, you can become a, a stem cell donor and the, the wonderful thing about that is that there are stem cell donors all over the world, I think there are about 500,000 of them now, um, who donate their stem cells or agree to donate their stem cells and if somebody comes and what you do is you um, I think it's a very simple thing like you have to uh, give a a sample of your DNA from the inside of your mouth so it's like a a spit kit or something they send you and um, that's no problem at all and then you're on the donor list and if you can find a a complete match then um, you donate your stem cells if you agree to do that and um, there 's not much chance of your being called to do that, but if they find a complete match, then you will donate your stem cells, and uh, that requires you going into hospital and ha- no uh, not necessarily no, just having a couple of injections which get your the stem cells from your bone marrow into your bloodstream, and then they then take blood like a like a blood transfusion in a normal way and um, And that will save somebody's life. So if you agree to do it, you can save somebody's life.
1: So you're like a sleeper agent waiting to be activated. Exactly The right match comes across. Exactly that. extraordinary.
2: And so there are half a million people now all over Mm. the world who are prepared to do that. But you have to really be prepared to do it. Because when it comes to it, you have to do it. Do you know what I mean? Sure. And uh, you can only donate if you're between 16 and 30. So you have to be quite young to do it. But once you're on the register, they'll keep you there till you're 60. And I'm not quite sure how this works, but um, they don't seem to want um, people on the register because if they do call you in, it costs about £100, which is
1: why they need donations as well as... Um, so they don't just need the, 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 the DNA, they need the money as well? They just need, yes...
2: So they just need the DNA, but it's wonderful if people who are young uh, donate, you know, agree to become stem donors, because Ben, uh, my son, had a very near match from Germany. It was the only match in 500,000, but it was very close. There were a couple of other fairly close ones. This one was very close, but they decided they couldn't use it because it wasn't quite close enough. It's quite a rare thing to find, um, especially with a rare cancer, to find uh, complete matches. So he's looking for a complete match. So I'm desperate that anybody who's between 16 and, and 30 should donate, because even if it doesn't help my son, it will help somebody else, because they may get a complete match. And it doesn't necessarily mean they'll ever have to do anything, but it just might come up, and if they agree to be a donor, then they have to go ahead with it. But you can find all the information you need on anthonynolan.org. On, online and it tells you everything about it. I've just given you the basics,
1: and the I'll do a reminder. In my intro, I always, I always do a reminder and say where. So we normally, we normally end with the charity, but we, we thought we'd start it at the, at the top because that's um, very important. And as a parent, it's, uh, it's funny as when I was young and looking to be an actor, we said, you know what, what. What's your biggest fear? And you go, oh, I want my career to be successful. Yes. <laughs> as soon as you have kids, you go, I want my kids to be all right. I so.
2: want them to be healthy and, ah. yes, exactly, and uh, and happy. Happy and healthy is all you really want from your children, isn't it? Yeah. And he's he, your eldest? He's my eldest.
1: He's 44, and he's uh, working in the leisure business. He works with, sort of, yes. So, actually, to tie it, because Doctor Who fans are famous for their tunnel vision, uh... Is, he is therefore the baby that Caroline John, your wife, was pregnant with in Inferno when she left Doctor Who.
2: Exactly so. Well,
1: there we go. Exactly
2: so. So she might not have locked except I don't know, but uh, <laughs> she might have been in Doctor Who longer. So don't blame, don't
1: blame my son for that. <laughs> no, but in, in effect, that but makes him was. canon because he was he was on screen. If. If, if hidden was, away you're dead right he was on
2: screen when when she cross when she crosses that weir in what is it because I know she was very well death, in yeah. the ambassadors of death she had to cross quite dangerously some weir um with water flowing and nearly falls into the water and she was actually pregnant with our ben who's now got the cancer at that time so he is hidden on he's, screen. He's canon. You're he's right. part of Doctor He's Who. part of the Doctor Who canon now <laughs> and um, it was all right because I think it was Roy Scammell who's a sort of um, I spoke to Roy on the phone only today. Man. Oh there bless you are. Yeah. Oh yeah. bless him. And he was. Roy, Roy donned the wig that's right. And he donned the wig and pretended to fall off the weir or you know half fall off the weir for Carrie and um, yes Carrie was a great fan of... Um, of Roy scandals because he, he, she said what a good job he did on that yes
1: yeah yeah. He's, well he's still going strong oh that's isn't. good yeah um, so well I mean this is normally this podcast is about Doctor Who but I feel I feel you're on the DVD of The Ambassadors of Death. Indeed, we did the commentary together for your. But I, I, I suppose it's the cliched question to ask is, how did you get a part in uh, Doctor Who, The Ambassadors of Death, which stars your wife Caroline John? I mean, was that a massive coincidence? <laughs> no, that that.
2: Um, well, no, it wasn't really. It was in those days, I suppose, directors, you know, had a stable of. Um, of actors that they knew, this is in the 70s, who they would employ, and the fact that Carrie had a boyfriend at the time who uh, was an actor and desperate to work in television, you know, and they said, oh, well, we'll give you this little part in as a radio operator. So I was lucky in that respect. It doesn't happen like that anymore no. at all, no, no, not at all. But at the time it was nice, and it gave me one of my first, I think it was
1: my second job in television, was ambassadors of death. So, so, I wonder, because we obviously, of course, we encounter Doctor Who actors when they're talking about Doctor Who on Doctor Who DVDs or doing interviews for Big Finish. But obviously, you are a person with a life in it, but it happens to be that you and your wife have both played quite significant parts in Doctor Who. I mean, when you are at home, were you sort of like, oh, God, Doctor Who again? Or is it something that you actually quite enjoyed having? Or are you genuinely baffled by it I just wonder what, how much of a part it plays in the real life of Caroline John and Jeffrey Beavers
2: that's very interesting isn't it I mean it, it was a very small part of our real lives at the beginning when when Ben was born um It was a very small part because we were thinking about starting a family and uh, there were lots and lots of... uh, We were desperate for work and jobs, and we got jobs in in lots of different areas, and Doctor Who was just one job among many others. And nobody knew, least of all Carrie and I, that Doctor Who would be so amazing, uh, um, you know, a, a franchise, sort of years and years and years later decades later. So we just treated it as a job like any other. She was very pleased to have her first good part. She'd been at the National Theatre, she was ever so thrilled to get her first part in a television series and she always um, really um, was happy about it for uh, giving her the chance to learn television because she didn 't hadn 't done much television before, like me and uh, but for her it was a huge learning experience doing the, doing the part, so she was learning all the time about television, which stood her in very good stead. but we were also thinking about certainly as soon as she left it, we were thinking about our family and I was thinking because she was absorbed with the baby, I was thinking more about um, Um, I was thinking more about having to find work myself to kind of keep the family alive. So it wasn't a sort of huge thing in our lives. But then it came back to be sort of like ten years later when I got a part as the master in The Keeper of Drachen. You know, and then I got a bit... And I was learning more about television by that stage. And then it sort of... um, and then for years, Carrie wasn't interested really in... She thought it was a side issue doing conventions. She just wanted to work as an actor and look after the family, and that was our real life. But then she went up to Manchester. I don't know if you probably know that story. She went up to Manchester and did a convention for nothing because she said, I'm not worthy of being paid anything for this convention. <laughs> I just... I just um, I'm terrified. And, and then... Somewhere between waiting backstage and arriving on the podium, the fans were so thrilled that she'd finally appeared after years of not doing conventions that, um, and gave her such a reception that by the time she arrived on the podium she was sort of waving to the fans and could and, and thoroughly a part of it from the very beginning and, uh, and loved the fans and was very appreciative of them ever, ever after that. And then it became a part of both our lives as during the nineties and as time went on and we went to very lots of conventions and things and and thoroughly enjoyed them. And then of course I got all these spin offs with the master and in...
1: Yes, but having been a sort of placeholder master to hand over to Anthony Ainley, yes. who's gonna do it regularly, you are you know, you, 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 you are now the, the standard bearer of, with Big Finish. You know, that your master has had his whole lease of life on audio.
2: Yes, which I absolutely love doing. I've got another one to do um, in a week or two um, for, uh, for an audio. Um, and I love doing them and I just so enjoy being the master and being able to play evil parts because I don't get them very often in, um, in television. I tend to get the nice... The nice parts, the vicars and the doctors, <laughs> and, the, yeah. and uh, it's it's lovely to play the evil parts from time to time, and it has it's given a whole master a whole lease of life for me,
1: which I've really loved. So tell me about you, Geoffrey. What was it that um, what was your background and what what got you, um, what it what made you want to be an actor and how did you go about it?
2: Gosh, being an actor originally, I suppose like most actors, I started by. By uh, loving, by showing off, (laughs) really, when you're a child and people appreciating it. And then uh, doing school plays and enjoying that. And then I went to university and um, studied history. And I liked that. But I, I had a funny choice at the end of university where I had to decide... I remember thinking quite consciously, I must do something that helps other people or I must do something that I really, really enjoy. Because we had the luxury in the 1960s of, of being able to think like that. I, I think it's so much harder since then, because most of us just have to think, what can I do to earn a living? But I, I felt after university I sort of had a choice. I could do something that would help other people. Or I could do something I really loved doing, and I decided the only thing I really had always really loved doing in school plays was being an actor. So I thought, well, I'll try it. I'm not committing myself, but I'll try it. I'll try and go to univers- I'll try and go to drama school. and if I hate it, I could drop out, but if I love it, and of course, I loved it the moment I got to drama school. But I was, again, I was incredibly lucky in the 60s. I was able to get a grant to go to university and then go to drama school. That simply is absolutely impossible for people now. And, and I find that very, very sad because I think people should be able to do what they really want to do in life and, and, and commit themselves to it completely. And I was lucky enough to be able to do that. Well, here's a Doctor Who story. I asked Anthony Ainley... Once, because he, one of his, um, who, when we were doing um, the um, uh, keeper of Traken, and uh, I was about to uh, take over his body and become the master, and he would become the master. um, So I was. I said, "There's a rumor in our family that we're related to Henry Ainley, who I think was his grandfather or great grandfather or something." and apparently we're related to him. And he said, um, it's quite likely... He said, I said, it's just a rumour in our family that we're related. And he said, it's quite likely he did a lot of touring. <laughs>
0: because... <laughs> I love that. <laughs> because he would pick up girls on tour. And, yes. <laughs>
2: So, so that's the rumor in our family. So maybe I'm related to oh, the aliens. So, maybe so that's maybe the blood. It's, maybe it's the masters are in there. Yes, ah, maybe it's the bloodline.
1: How extraordinary! Um, so, uh, I mean, you, you, we, it's interesting because a lot of the actors that I've talked to about this, you know, are actors that, that had big, big heydays, and, and, and they agreed to talk to me about Doctor Who. And, and the acting profession is one that. Largely doesn't end happily for a lot of people because wherever it is you peak, you peak, and yes. the only way down. But I'm talking to you, and you've just come back from being on Broadway in one of the most successful plays of the past few years, playing the equerry to um, Helen Mirren, which yes. you did at the West End, did at Broadway. Things are pretty good then.
2: Yes, now I've had a I've had a charmed career in 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 many ways in that. It was very slow to get going. They were very worrying years, the early years with Carrie um, and Ben, of course. And then our two other children, Tom and Daisy, who were born uh, about five years later, five, seven years later. And um, so it was a hard graft for a long, long time as an actor. And... um, and, but it seems to have been a slow climb, whereas sometimes actors hit their peak very early and then they are rather depressed because it all falls apart. And mine has uh, always, always got better. And I, I, I say sometimes if I had another 50 years of life, I might sort of start getting somewhere. <laughs> yes, I might make it as a star. Yes, no, it's... um. And, but it's been wonderful. The, um, the sad thing is that Carrie um, died before, um, before some of the m- more lovely things that have happened to me, like I've written some books, um, The Progress Road and The forg- Forgotten Fields, which I wrote years ago and put on shelves because I never dared um, uh, put them to publishers because I was... Um, too fright- too scared of rejection because you get a lot of rejection as an actor, and I didn't want to expose myself. And suddenly my books are published. Suddenly I'm getting jobs on. The, you know, I got a really good part at the RSC. Um, a couple of scenes um, You know, about the time that she was dying, and. Um, and uh, wonderful part in the West End and on Broadway, and, and lots of wonderful professional things have happened to me just at the time when it's most um, most tragic, sort of personally, when Carrie died and, 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 and Ben got this cancer. Yeah. So it's, it's a very strange combination, uh, facing professional success at the same time as um, personal Tragedy, yeah.
1: And how how do you make sense of it? Is the sense of it, or is that just life's chaotic nature?
2: I think it's life's chaotic nature. I I, I personally can't make sense of it. I think an awful lot of life is just pure chance. But professionally, I have been very lucky that um, that my career has. So I haven't had to face that disappointment of people's career that people feel when their
1: careers go downhill. Well, because well, I was looking at your your stuff and going, I, I was waiting for a big, because I remember seeing a very British coup and I think your name's yeah. in the opening titles, so you know, right. you got the no, name I had a wonderful in part opening. in it. it's a lovely part. But So I was, I was going, well, I wonder what it was he did before that, and it's all guest parts here, and I'm waiting for the big thing yeah. to come, and it doesn't for ages, and no. you're sort of doing one thing here and one thing there. So was it no. just attritional then? I
2: it's guess? attritional, I think. Yes, attritional is a good word. It's like you just keep battering away at the doors of the profession, and things open, but not. I've never had a big break. I've just slowly built up a career, and my most successful time, I suppose, as a, um, a in television was probably when I did a, a very British coup and um, and. I't know uh, what passage, yeah, jewel, uh, jewel in the crown and things like that in the 80s and 90s and I was in series in the 90s and things uh, medics with um, Tom um, with Tom, Tom Baker, Baker yeah. and 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 various other things in the 90s but uh, but then I was doing more partly by choice in the theater
1: um,
2: after that and directing and teaching and writing and so there are a lot of things going on, but I've never felt I'd sort of fallen off the ladder as it were, as some people do.
1: Well not, no, when you write Not working. through
2: their own fault. I mean sometimes you get wonderfully talented actors who simply get forgotten. And there are wonderfully talented actors who never get started. It's a
1: dreadful business <laughs> <that>. <laughs> as you know. I mean it's all indeed it's but, not easy. But but it's that decision that you make, isn't it? you go well I've, I've got to see if I can do it. Yes. Whereas with writing you were doing it, but you didn't want to put it out there. so what, but you've had what, what was it what was the turning point where you went, well okay, I've been writing this stuff. let's see if.
2: Oh, I think it was asked being asked. Uh, so it fed back from Doctor Who in a way, from the Doctor Who people because it fed back into phantom films who do phantom publishing and were starting to publish novels and they, when I sent them my novels they were really interested to publish them and partly because they are partly involved in, in time travel in a funny kind of way and it, it has some themes, the things that I write have some themes that might interest Doctor Who fans so I kind of um, thought well that's, that's great so I was ever so pleased that they published them. And, um, and and it's encouraged me to write another novel, which I'm in the middle of at the moment,
1: yeah. And you're quite happy writing. It's not something you have to force yourself to do. You, you quite enjoy the process.
2: I love writing. I think writing, and for any aspiring actor, is a wonderful thing to combine... Well, you're a writer and an actor too, Jamie, so so <laughs> you, you probably know this. I mean, I think there's a wonderful combination of writing and acting because um, acting... Uh, uh, acting is something that is very social you meet lots of other people and it's lovely uh, the company feeling and all the rest of it is is wonderful and it's but you are at the mercy of other people employing you to get it going whereas writing is something you can do entirely on your own and you as an actor, you have very little control. As a writer, you have control over all the parts, all the characters, what, what happens, everything that's happening. And so you're the sort of... Um, well, it's like being the master. You can control it all. <laughs> and that's a great
1: thing. Well, here's an interesting thing, then, because, as we've alluded to, you, you've just come back from Broadway doing a play that you started at the West End, where you have that thing where you're a company of actors... But then, when it goes to America, that must be the thing. There must be that thing of, well, some of us are going to go and some of us aren't, because do do you have to use a certain amount of American actors when something transfers over?
2: Yes, you do. And but I think that we were lucky in that, um, in that I think all the actors. Uh, that were in the original West End were asked if they wanted to go and some of them had other jobs and some of them weren't able to go for different reasons. So it enabled... Because I think they have a sort of quota system, don't they, where some English actors are allowed to go and some um, American actors have to fill the parts. And um, I think it worked out that there were enough people in the main... Parts as prime ministers in the audience, who weren't able to go, that allowed the Americans in, and we ended up with a balanced cast, because that's what certainly the impression I got in America.
1: And at the end of the day, is being a member of a company that's all English actors and being a member of a company that's a mixture of English actors and American actors, are actors the same wherever you are? Or-
2: I I think they are. Basically, we're all we're all very similar actors wherever you are. I think uh, English actors are a little, uh, certainly of my age, are a little bit more diffident about pushing themselves. American actors are a little bit um, cla- uh, sort of stronger at putting themselves forward and saying, I'm the greatest thing since you know, sliced bread and just employ me. Uh, we're not so good at that, but uh, yes. That's, that's the main difference I found that on Broadway in New York everybody is pushing I, I noticed it when I was on a, um, in, uh, I went to Los Angeles once for a job and I noticed that every taxi driver um, is an actor who shows you his um, CV and shows you his photograph and says I'm a great actor, employ me you know, even though he, you know, he happens to be driving a taxi at the time but people are pushier in America. they believe in that people can get on in a way that we tend to be more difficult about, but I think it's changing even over here isn 't it? People need to be pushier to, to get anywhere probably. sadly yeah, sadly
1: so well, uh, how did you that because um, I was looking at um, was your first stage um, wasn't the screens with Peter Brook, was it where you played Arab? I noticed in the casting. Oh, I
2: say that was my very first, was that your job, first job. Was for Peter Brook, yeah,
1: that's the a good great way to start. Peter Brook.
2: Not a bad way to start, except it was just that we were employed because we were drama students. Ah, uh, that's all it was, and uh, it was in the screens, Genet's the screens. And all I remember was having to run about playing, um, uh, uh, painting. Cut off arms and legs on white screens and that was the sort of, that was what we had to do. Um, And um, Charles Maravitz, who was uh, uh, Peter Brook's assistant director, organised us all like mad for days on end to you run here and then you paint that on here and then you run there and all the rest of it and then Peter Brooks said yes, very good, but um, I think we'll do it slightly differently and reorganise ourselves <laughs> and that's all I remember about it now and the fact that I earned what was it? my very first salary I think it was
1: £7.10
2: shillings, which is like £7.50 a week yeah
1: Which is funny enough, what you are now in the (laughs) (laughs) theatre. It doesn't change much, does it? (laughs) And and then coming sort of closer to this, and you did, I mean, you've been there, you did, um, you were Horatio to Mark Rylance's Hamlet.
2: That's true, yes. The Globe. That was a wonderful experience. Just. Um, the joy about playing Hamlet, it's not, a, it's not a showy part, but the joy is that you get to be very close to whoever's playing Hamlet and to be close to Mark Rylance, play, because you're, you play all your scenes are with him, and, or most of them. And just to be close to Mark Rylance, uh, watching him was a huge, wonderful experience at the Globe. And also because the Globe itself is such a wonderful space... I do remember one amazing time when we were in a, um, playing the, grave, the scene round the grave and he was doing Alas, poor Yorick and holding a skull and talking about death. And it was like something descended from heaven. It was sort of absolutely magical. And he was quite different for a moment. And you could feel it with the whole audience. And I don't know what happened, I I really can't explain it, except that that was sort of genius descending on, on Mark Rylance, and I was there at the time. And I think he has that quality which practically no other, actually no other actor I've ever experienced it with, although I've worked with some great actors over the years, but I've never experienced it like I experienced it on that evening with him. And it... And I went up to him and asked him, what happened there? That was amazing. And, and he said, um, yes, wasn't it? Something happened, I don't know what. And then the next day he'd throw it all away and start again somewhere differently. Because the worst thing you can do as an actor is to try to repeat the success that you had the night before. And Mark Rylance is clever enough to know that.
1: That's
2: and, very interesting. Yeah. So it was, a, it was a, but it was a wonderful experience playing Horatio to his Hamlet.
1: And, and then uh, to counterbalance that, on television, you were uh, you are in the BBC Shakespeare Hamlet with Derek Jacobi, and it oh was directed by a Doctor Who director, Rodney Bennett.
2: Oh, really? Yeah. That's right.
1: And Lalla Ward was in it, who also has Doctor oh, was Who. was she? Uh, and uh, and Patrick Stewart, who we don't know what happened to him, but nothing to do with
2: <laughs> <laughs> Oh, it had all the great actors of the time in it. But, the, but the, the, yes, I, I played a very small, very tiny part in the Hamlet, um, but it's still shown around the place. and is the, I'm not sure how good um, that whole series was, but I enjoyed it. I literally dipped into it for, for a week or two, so I don't remember much about it
1: now. I think it's a laudable exercise to which time... Doesn't necessarily be kind because yes. we don't do studio band videotape drama in front of sets at Exactly that. Yeah. So okay, well, look, we've got to bring this to a close fairly shortly. So, um, what are your highlights on television then, as an actor? What are the television things that you've you've most enjoyed, or have you think that have been the best? Oh, that's
2: very hard to know. I mean, I I think the things I most enjoyed were um, pa- were the um, jewel in the crown because of going to. I had a wonderful time in India, and we filmed in um Simla in the Himalayas and went yeah and traveling to India and doing that and It was a wonderful series with wonderful people in it, and I think that and a very British coup because of the director who directed me in a way that very few, at the time it was amazing because he'd say things like um I know this is an intimate scene but we're going to do it in long shot from miles away and we'll be shooting you from up in that tower over there and you'll be walking through the um, uh, you know the quadrangle or wherever it was and we'll um, shoot you from miles away so I just need you to know that so that you can make your performance understood so you would give slightly bigger gestures or whatever it is to to fit with it or he'd say now I want you to play this scene completely for real but just be aware that we are Um, filming your right eye and a small portion of your nose, because you'll be small, you'll be in such close-up, you know what I mean? Things things like that. And I learnt so much about television from working on uh, A Very British Goo, and also because I thought the results were wonderful. It's a great thing. So I suppose those two things in the 80s were the highlight of my television career. And of course, playing the master, <laughs> which well, was, because it's paid off so well since, with you know all these lovely, um, yeah, spin-offs with big finish, yeah.
1: And you said if you had another fifty odd years in the profession, you feel you've just about cracked it. But um, okay, assuming that happened, what what would be what is the one thing that you would like to do now that you? if you were offered the chance you'd grab that you'd go yeah and then I feel I would have really I
2: think I'd love to do some, I, I, I've been very lucky in Shakespeare, I've played King Lear and Prospero and Andrew Aguecheek and a lot of wonderful parts but there are still some wonderful parts I'd love to do in Shakespeare because Shakespeare and George Eliot when I've been directing have been my two favourite kind of areas, I'd But I think I'd like to do more Shakespeare. I'd like to do—I'd love to do a regular part in a television series, like um, *Lark Rise to Candleford* or a classical television series. I would love to do, and I would love—I had another fifty years. I'd love to direct more because I've loved um, starting to direct in the theatre. And I'd love to teach more because I'd love—I've loved recently passing on what I know to young actors on their way up. So I'd love to teach and direct and play more Shakespeare. And um, yes, that's sort of the way I would—and and do some more television. But yes, that's, that's enough. The way for I'd fifty like years. It. I think that's about <laughs> enough for the next fifty
1: years. And remind us of your charity again, Geoffrey.
2: And my charity is yes. Um, Anthony Nolan, look up anthonynolan.org on the uh, website and it'll tell you everything you need to know but we desperately need or oh, everybody who has a rare cancer desperately needs um, stem cell transplants and if my son could only find a match he'd be completely cured if, if Ben doesn't he's the one that on the weir in uh, Ambassadors of Death. Um, if he doesn't, then um, this very aggressive cancer will return and he doesn't h- hold much chance. So um, if, and if it doesn't help him, it will help other people anywhere all over the world who suffer from rare cancers. So it's anthonynolan.org.
1: Well, I can't think of a better reason to have convened, but we we nominally convened about Doctor Who, which seems small fry by comparison. But the final question is always, what is your message to the Doctor Who fans out there uh, who are listening to this podcast?
2: Oh, gosh, I have no idea. I haven't thought about that. (laughs) Just um,
1: keep watching, keep listening, enjoy. (laughs) Yes. Geoffrey Beavers, thank you very much indeed.
0: Well, that's very kind of Geoffrey and I hope you uh, not only uh, donate to the charity but maybe spread the word uh, about the special requirements of that particular charity because obviously it's a very important cause. Um, It's the Christmas special next week. I don't know who's going to be on it because... um, because I don't know. So there's no trailer because it doesn't exist yet. But let's see what happens. In the meantime... um, not many sleeps till uh, the um, 50th anniversary of the Feast of Stephen. Oh, that's something worth celebrating. Bye. Oh, but a reminder, of course, the charity is anthonynolan.org. Uh, As you can follow me on Twitter at Toby Haydoke. Do one or both of those things. Coming soon from Big Finish Productions. Doctor Who, The Churchill Years, Volume One. I was the first to appreciate that after all my misguided efforts, a trip aboard the Doctor's improbable flying machine was all that was needed to make an old man feel young again. The Doctor! The Doctor! He's here! It was the young Tweedy Doctor this time with the bow-tie. The trouble is, this letter's incendiary. If its contents were to get out, why, the nation might lose faith in its leader. I know, exclaimed the tall, thin fellow in the spivish suit.
2: They were the footprints of a gigantic hound.
0: What the devil? Ah! Halt, stop, desist from movement. Stop, and you will not be harmed possible they all look the same it was a man
2: wearing some kind of weathered black leather jacket and bizarrely lacking both necktie and hat
1: behold the bronze god
0: advance an iron side prime minister behind you The creature flew at the doctor at great speed. Julius Caesar invading ancient Britain? (laughs) It sounds ideal to me, Doctor. We are about to engage the enemy. (laughs) (laughs) Under attack! Under attack! (laughs) Big Finish. We love stories.